And now, Father, as we gather to study your word, we pray that it would accomplish your work in us, that being molding us and shaping us and conforming us to the image of Christ. Use your word to strengthen us. Use your word to encourage us. Use your word to correct us and use your word to glorify Jesus Christ and to draw our hearts more fully to him. We also pray for our children who are here, both in the womb and outside of the womb. And as always, Father, we remember that they are a gift from you, a reward from you. We pray for their salvation as well. We pray that many seeds would be planted as they hear your word preached and that those seeds would bear a rich and ripe harvest in due time, that they would believe in Jesus Christ savingly. Oh Lord, use this time for your people, for our good, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 28. We're going to be looking at Psalm 28 today. The first Sunday of every month, we study a psalm. Every other Sunday, we study the gospel according to John. Next Sunday, Pastor Jordan will be preaching out of Jude, I believe. So uh, be looking forward to that. But today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 28, which is one one of those psalms that can make people kind of uncomfortable because there's a section in here that includes an imprecatory prayer, which means a prayer against God's enemies, basically. Basically, it's a a prayer for the destruction of God's enemies. And I recognize that as you were singing Psalm 28 this morning, some of the lyrics might have seemed kind of coarse, kind of harsh. And it often strikes us that way when we read imprecatory psalms. But we have to understand that these words are inspired, but they're breathed out by God, and that they are perfect. And so it's our responsibility to understand and not to judge God's word. And this is a great psalm for us to learn to do that with. You know, I've always been a very time-oriented person, for most of my life anyway. Those who know me best and love me anyway know that being on time in my book means being early and sometimes being really early, way too early. My family knows. Uh, And I think that started when I was in fifth grade and I would ride my bike to school. It was about two miles away. School started at 8.50, but I would leave my house around eight o'clock and and I just enjoyed the time that I had to kill on the playground and grew very comfortable with the fact that I was never late for school. So as I grew older, it just kind of became a normal part of every routine to get where I'm going early, even if there's really not any need to do so. But part of being a very time-oriented person uh, means keeping a, a fairly rigid uh, routine, a fairly rigid structure to my daily schedule. Now, in our culture, that's, that's pretty normal. Uh, in fact, if you use GPS to go someplace, it'll tell you exactly what time you're expected to get there, and you drive accordingly, right? If you see that you're going to be late, you might speed up a little bit. If you see that you're going to get there really early, you might say, oh, I'll stop and get Starbucks. And the reason that you do that is because you're time-oriented. It's very normal in our culture. It's probably very hard for you to imagine a church service that is scheduled to start at 1045, and yet it doesn't start until... 
maybe 11.40. Now, if, if just imagining that scenario feels very awkward for you, and I, I imagine that it does, well, you're, you're probably very time-oriented as well. Uh, that's normal in our culture, but there are cultures around the world where time is really not of the essence, not in the way that it is here in our culture. Uh, for example, in some other countries, instead of starting at a specific time for church, the idea is somewhere more along the lines of, we'll start when everybody gets here. And so if somebody doesn't show up for church on Sunday morning, what happens? They don't start. In fact, a couple people will go off and try to find that person and bring them to the service. So as very time-oriented people in a very time-oriented culture, there are pros and cons, right? Like with everything, there are pros and cons. And one of, one of those cons is that it's very hard for us to wait, we're a really, really impatient culture. We grow impatient very easily. And for that reason, I think one of the challenges that we face as Christians who live in a very structured, time-oriented culture is the challenge of waiting on the Lord. Now, if you remember, that's how Psalm 27 ended. If you just look up in your Bible at the previous psalm, how it ended, you see that that's how it ended. In fact, the last verse of Psalm 27 instructs us not just once, but twice to wait on the Lord. Now, as we've seen with so many of the psalms, there's a connectedness here between Psalm 27 and Psalm 28. Psalm 28 seems to be closely connected to Psalm 27, and it serves as kind of a sequel to Psalm 27. Uh, even Charles Spurgeon made the same observation. He notes that Psalm 28's placement after Psalm 27, quote, seems to have been designed for it is a most suitable pendant and sequel to it, end quote. Now, Psalm 27 ends with David saying, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. But how long can you do that for? How long can you wait on the Lord? How long can you be strong and let your heart take courage as you wait on the Lord? How about a week? Sometimes that seems like a long time. How about, how about a month? How about a year? How about several years? See, when we wait on the Lord, we are usually thinking two ways. Number one, we're thinking in terms of time, how long we have to do it. And secondly, we're thinking in terms of what it will look like when God answers a prayer. But our timing, unlike God's, is so imperfect. God's isn't. His timing is never imperfect. His is perfect. Ours is imperfect. And the more time goes by, the more difficult it becomes for us to wait on the Lord, especially in a culture like ours where we grow impatient so easily. So Psalm, 27, Psalm 28 addresses what David does as he waits and waits and waits for the Lord to answer his prayer. The question is, what should we do while we're waiting? What does it look like to wait on the Lord, and what should we be doing knowing that we don't know exactly how long we might be waiting? I'll give you the short answer first. The short answer is continue to pray. Continue to seek God's face by persevering in faith and prayer. The longer answer, well, we're going to look at that as we go through this psalm today. Jesus once taught a parable about the importance of 
persevering in prayer. Luke tells us in Luke 18, 1 to 5. Now he, of course, speaking of Jesus, now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, which is what often happens when we wait on the Lord. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Now let's just stop there and make sure that we understand what this parable is teaching. The judge in this parable is not God. The judge in this parable is not God. Rather, this judge is completely wicked. This judge is unjust, which means that he is actually completely the opposite of what God is, right? And the idea here is that if an unjust, wicked, evil judge will grant this woman's request because she perseveres in petitioning him, how much more will God, who is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and loving, how much more will he hear and respond to the prayers of his children? Jesus says in verses 7 and 8, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. So why should we persist in prayer? Because God is not indifferent to the cries of his people. And that's the point of this psalm as well. God is not indifferent to the cries of his people. And thus we should rejoice in knowing that he hears us and will answer us in his time and in his way. So let's start by reading verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 28. A psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Now this psalm is broken up into stanzas, and that's the first stanza. And this first stanza reveals the emotions that David is feeling as he is waiting on the Lord. Now, we don't know how much time has passed uh, as as David has waited on the Lord. We don't know how how long he's been waiting, but we get the sense that it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. And for that reason, David is feeling sorrowful. He might even be feeling a little bit afraid, or maybe he feels alone. Whatever the case, it's clear that from his perspective, it feels like God has just been silent for way too long. How many of you guys can relate? We probably all can. We probably all can. And that's where David is. He feels like God has been silent and hasn't been answering his prayers for so long. He's continued to pray, but it's, it seemed, from his perspective, it seemed like his prayers have fallen on deaf ears and that God has not been answering him. And so David's response is to call out to God, to continue calling out to God. The Hebrew word there, 
carries an implication beyond just a, a casual call. Like I might call one of you guys over here or something to, to talk to me after the service or something like that. No, this is, the, the implication of this word is actually of a cry of desperation. It's, it's more desperate than just a regular call. It's a desperate call. And there are times when calling out to God that way is almost natural. And it's very appropriate. When you're tired of waiting on the Lord and when nothing seems to help or to bring comfort, what better response is there than to cry out to God? What people often do is lose heart, just like Jesus warns us against in the parable of the widow and the judge. What people will often do is they'll, they'll either give up or they'll kind of do both. They'll, they'll, they'll give up, but they'll also be taking matters into their own hands. Remember Abraham and Sarah? They were expecting a baby. What did they have to do? They had to wait on the Lord. And when they grew impatient, what did they do? They took matters into their own hands. People do that. But we can't. We can't do that. God would never give up on us, so how can we ever dare to give up on him? There are many who have just actually even gone so far as to leave the faith because they felt like God just was not answering their prayers. Not in the, in the time frame that they had expected and not in the way that they had expected. He's just not answering their prayers at all from their perspective. But the truth is, he just wasn't answering as quickly as they had wanted or in the way that he had wanted. But let me urge you, let me start out today by urging you to never give up on God as you wait. Continue crying out to him. Consider how ready, consider indeed how how eager a parent is to come to the aid of their child when their child cries. How much more ready and how much more eager do you think God is? Far more. Far more. Because his love for his children is far more than even the greatest love of an earthly father or mother for their children. God is ready and eager to hear and to help. So when David says, do not be deaf to me, from a theological perspective, he knows that God isn't deaf. It's a figure of speech. But he feels like he's been ignored. He feels like he's just been left in silence. He feels like he's just been talking to a wall. But let's see something that's very important here. Look at the text with me. Let's see something very important when it comes to persevering through trials in which God seems like he's being silent. Even when God seems silent, from David's perspective, look what he says here in verse 1. God is still David's rock. He's still David's rock. That's, of course, an image that's presented to us so many times in Scripture. And and do you remember why? I mean, do do, do you remember why? It's because unlike sinking sand... Our God never shifts. He never changes. He's eternally steadfast in his ways. He cannot be moved just like a rock. And thus, he is a solid and secure foundation to stand on when the world around you is shifting and drifting away. See, the problem is, stepping into David's shoes here for a second, from our perspective, it's so easy for us to be led by our feelings. 
But the problem with that is that our feelings lie to us. It'll, it'll sometimes seem like God has closed off his ear from hearing us, but our response to that can't be to close our mouths from crying out to him, no matter what our feelings might be. God becoming deaf to our prayers and petitions, I mean, if you think about it, that would actually be probably the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to us. And the thought even seems to enter David's mind. As he considers how terrible it would be if his prayers were actually falling on deaf ears, he says, if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. The word there is Sheol. Uh, it refers to the place of the dead. Now, does David think that he's going to die if God doesn't answer him? I don't think that's what he's saying. Rather, David is speaking spiritually here. He's saying that he's spiritually no better off than a dead person if God doesn't answer his prayers. Uh, More specifically, he's spiritually no better off than a spiritually dead person who has no right standing with God to speak of if God doesn't answer his prayers. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought of your life in those terms, that without God speaking, that you're just you're as, as well off as somebody who doesn't know God, somebody who is totally disconnected from God. But think about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil after 40 days. Jesus was starving, and during that time, uh, he was fasting. And so the devil tempts him to turn the rocks into loaves of bread. I mean, after all, if he's God, he can do that, right? But what does Jesus do instead of doing that? He responds by quoting from Scripture. He says to Satan, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he was actually quoting Scripture there. He was quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And where do you go to hear from God? Also Scripture. So putting all these thoughts together now, if you are not receiving and feasting on the word of God regularly, then you can't be hearing from God. You're not hearing from God if you're not receiving and feasting on the word of God. And if that's the case, what spiritual advantage do you suppose you might have over somebody who is totally lost, spiritually dead? See, what David is saying is true. If he doesn't hear from God, he's no better off, spiritually speaking, than someone who's spiritually dead. He's right. And it's also true for you and me. And if that's the case, don't you think that we should be very, very serious about receiving and being nourished regularly by God's Word? As James Boyce notes, he says, quote, If we really believed that we were perishing apart from hearing the voice of God, as David apparently did, wouldn't we study the Bible more? And wouldn't we pray more? End quote. And of course, the answer is yes. Yes, that, that certainly should be the case. But I think David has a second purpose here in, in what he says there. I think he's also giving God a reason to answer him, that being that if God remains silent toward David, then God is treating David the same way that God treats his enemies. So what does David do? He continues praying. That's the first thing we need to know when we're waiting on the Lord. Keep praying. Keep praying. 
he urges God all the more in light of the fact that if he doesn't hear from God, he's no better off spiritually speaking than the lost. He urges God to hear his prayers when he does two things. Look what he says there in verse 2. When he cries out to God and when he lifts his hands toward God's holy sanctuary. That's really important for us to understand. See, David is actually asking for mercy at the beginning of this prayer. The holy sanctuary was the place found at the innermost place of the tabernacle, the innermost part of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And in that place, blood sacrifices would be made on the annual day of atonement for the forgiveness of sins. So when David says, uh, when he asks God to hear him, when, when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary, it tells us that he is consciously coming before God only on the basis of the blood that was shed on behalf of his sins, for the remission of his sins. And friends, there is no other way to come before God. Of course, we know that the blood of bulls and goats never satisfied God. But the shed blood of animals did something. They served a purpose. They pointed to the once and for all atonement that was made on Calvary through the shed blood of Christ. Now David looked forward to that once and for all atonement in the same way that we look backwards historically on it. So the beginning of this psalm is very important for us to understand because too often our expectation is that God will answer our prayers immediately or perhaps maybe just before too long. Or maybe we have an expectation that God will answer a certain way and yet he doesn't. God's word gives you the answer, the way to peace. Isaiah puts it this way, Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace Because he trusts in you. In other words, keep your mind, while you're waiting on the Lord, keep your mind steadfastly fixed on the Lord, trusting in him, and he will keep you in perfect peace. We have to learn to persist in faithfulness and prayer as we wait on the Lord, crying out to him, remembering that we present our prayers and petitions to him only on the basis of the blood that was shed for the remission of our own sins, the shed blood of Christ. As a Christian, friend, one of the best things that you can learn to do is to pray with persistence and patience. But remember that God is not indifferent to the cries of his people. And therefore, we should rejoice in knowing that he hears us and that he will answer us in his time and in his way. As we continue, verses 3 to 5 reveal the prayer that David is going to lift up to God. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. He writes, Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. This is the central stanza. And of course, as you recognize, this is the imprecatory part of the psalm. 
His prayer reveals his concern, his concern for what lies ahead. He knows, he knows that God is just, and thus he knows that God will one day, in one way or another, deal justly with the wicked and rebellious people who refuse to worship God. So why would David have concern about that? It's because David knows his own heart. David knows that the vilest acts that the the chief of sinners is capable of doing, David is also capable of doing. David knows what goes on in his heart. He knows the thoughts that he has in his mind. He knows how prone he is to wander. That's why he's so desperate to get a response from God. It's because he has this healthy dose of the fear of the Lord, and at the same time, he's got an awareness of how sinful he himself is. And apart from receiving the life-giving, soul-strengthening power of God's word, he has every reason to fear being numbered and swept up among the wicked. So in saying this, David is asking that his prayer not be treated like the prayers and petitions of the wicked. The implication here, by the way, is that God doesn't answer the prayers of the wicked. And the reason that God doesn't answer the prayers of the wicked is because the wicked would only pray for what benefits themselves. They would only pray as a means of manipulating God. And God isn't going to be treated like anyone's magic genie in a bottle. So look at how David describes the wicked in verse 3. He says they speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. In other words, that's what we would call a hypocrite. It's hypocritical relationships where there's something different in their hearts than what they are trying to portray on the outside. They're putting on an act. And the thing is, they would treat God no differently. That's exactly how they would pray to God. They would present themselves as being gentle and humble before God while actually harboring hatred toward him in their hearts. And that reminds us that we need to be aware of the fact that God sees through any hypocrisy that we might have and that hypocrisy not only doesn't fool God, but that it will serve as an obstacle to your relationship with God being healthy. It will prevent our prayers from being heard and answered. God hates hypocrisy. But David quickly transitions from describing the wickedness of God's enemies to asking that God will deal with them and deal with them justly. To requite, that's not a word that we really use a whole lot. I don't think I've ever used that in a sentence. But to requite is just, it's just to repay, uh, to repay justly, to seek a consequence that is appropriate. Repay them for their recompense, he says. In other words, give them what they deserve. Now, I get it. We live in an age where tolerance is the chief of virtues, supposedly. It's hypocritical, isn't it? We know that the culture is very hypocritical when it comes to tolerance, but tolerance is the chief of virtues in our culture. And so that makes people in our time feel a little bit uneasy when they read something like that in God's word. Now, you know, if David had posted this on social media, uh, the tone police would be all over him. And yet he's showing us that there is a place for this kind of prayer, regardless of the fact that it's contrary to our more 
postmodern tolerating age. Now, somebody might say, well, the problem with it is it just sounds so self-righteous, but it's not. It's not. In fact, knowing that God will deal justly with the wicked is one of the greatest comforts that we have in this life. It's one of the greatest comforts that we have. In our day and age, think about what, what the culture is crying for right now. They're, they're crying for, for justice. They've got a different version of justice than the Bible has, but they're crying for justice. But the, the thing is, they want to see it now. They want to see justice right here, right now. They want it to be quick, and they want it to be severe. And the problem with that is that when justice is quick and severe, it's often not just. What, what often ends up happening is that the punishment is greater than the crime. And we see that all over right now. It's, it's easy when you're, when you're asking for justice from a human perspective for justice to be delivered in a way that's just overkill. Punishing the innocent along with the wicked. For example... Let me give you this example. The, the child who is sexually abused, and yet their abuser goes free. What comfort could they ever possibly have that the person who abused them is going to be dealt with justly? This is it. This is it. it, it, it and it's a greater comfort than knowing that they're going to a human court to know that that person is going to have to stand before God and that God will deal with them justly. As we look at our world today and we see that mayors and governors of major cities are refusing to enforce laws against the lawless and who allow the lawless to just continue wreaking havoc and creating civil unrest, lighting buildings on fire, beating elderly helpless people in the streets. Is it not frustrating, if not angering, for us to see this kind of stuff going on? Of course it is, because we know that the government actually has not just a, a man-given or a responsibility, but a God-ordained responsibility to punish evildoers. That's one of God's responsibilities that he's ordained for the government to carry out. So if the government isn't doing that, if they're not punishing evildoers as God has instructed them and designed them to do, what comfort do we have? We know, we know that God is just and that the lawless and that those who not only enable but who celebrate the lawless, they will all stand before God one day and he will deal with them justly. Now I've often said that when I consider those who have done the greatest injustices, the greatest wrongs to me, and have faced no consequences for their actions, that the greatest punishment God could possibly give them is to deal with them in the here and now, bringing them to saving faith and repentance so that they feel the guilt of their wrongdoing for me to see, for them to experience right now. Now, if you remember Jeffrey Dahmer, you know that he did some gruesome, horrible things. He committed acts of, of wickedness that are probably beyond the imagination of most people. 
But while he was in prison, he was faced with the reality of what he had done, and it crushed him, and it humbled him. Can you imagine being in his shoes, coming to your senses, and realizing the utter wickedness of everything that you have done? Now, there is actually good reason to believe that Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian before he died, that God dealt with him on this side of glory, opening his eyes to the soul-crushing weight of his guilt. Now, this is one reason that we pray for the salvation of our enemies, because we know that God will ensure that their repentance is true. God's the one who grants repentance, and if he grants somebody who's done wrong to you, true repentance, you'll, you'll get to experience seeing them wrestling with that guilt and coming to you and trying to be reconciled to you. But let me ask you this, which is greater? This is really what it comes down to, I think. Which is greater? Our desire to see Jesus glorified through the salvation of sinners, even our worst enemies, or the destruction of the wicked? God will be glorified in both things. But which is greater for us? Which do we want to see here in the here and now? Something between you and God. Something between you and the Lord. God will be glorified through the salvation of sinners and he will be glorified through the destruction of sinners. But shouldn't we be praying for our enemies so that we can actually have a chance to be reconciled to them? God in his sovereign grace and wisdom is capable of making that happen. He's opened the spiritual eyes of people who have done horrendous things, but only he only does this in the here and now so that they might believe in Christ, so that they might cast their sins, cast their guilt, cast their shame all upon Christ and be reconciled to God first and then to their fellow man second. Think, think about Paul, for example. He assisted in the murder of Christians. And yet, God dealt with him in the here and now, and he was reconciled, not only to God, but to the apostles. So look what David says here in verse 5. He says that the wicked don't regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hand. Can God change that? Of course he can. Of course he can. He can absolutely change that. That's the reason you and I are Christians, is because God has done that to us. He can. By his sovereign grace, which is the only hope that any sinner ever has, God can deal with their sin by casting it upon Christ, the only perfect, the only sinless lamb who was slain on behalf of all who would believe in him. God is perfectly just to do this. But here's the warning to those who refuse to believe. And that is this. This is the warning that God is also perfectly just to tear down the wicked and not build them back up. Whatever God chooses, David's prayer reflects his desire that wickedness not prosper. We have the same desire, don't we? We, we don't like to see wickedness prosper but rather we like to see righteousness vindicated. That's what, 
That's what David wants to see too. He wants to see righteousness prevail and be vindicated. Now, no matter what your feelings are about David's prayer here, we should desire the same things. We should pray that evil plans would be destroyed and decimated. We should pray that those who persist in evil and victimize the innocent would be stopped. That their, that their plans and their actions would, would, would come to an end. We should pray that God would prosper those who do not participate in acts of lawlessness, but who participate in acts of righteousness. James Boyce notes that, quote, David wanted those who observed him to say, no, the way of the righteous is the right way. The way may be hard, but in the end it is better to have obeyed and served God, end quote. We want the same thing, don't we? We want the same thing. We want people to see that righteousness is something God will bless and that lawlessness is something that he will punish. See, if if David should be shamed and and the, the wicked continue to prosper, people would start getting this idea in their minds, as they do today, that crime pays. And so what happens when they get the idea that crime pays? Lawlessness doesn't stay the same. It increases. David didn't want that to happen. It was for society's good that that wouldn't happen. It was for David's good that that wouldn't happen. And we shouldn't want lawlessness to increase in our time either. Again, for society's good. Friends, many, so many people have invested the time that they have in this life on things that ultimately do not matter that ultimately are completely worthless. Everybody today is an activist. But what are they an activist for? They're an activist they're activists for things that have nothing to do with God and that have no regard for good or evil. In the end, they will see that their lives were actually wasted and that their actions only caused incredible harm, not only to themselves, but to others. But you, you, if you have ears to hear today, You don't need to learn this lesson the hard way. You don't need to learn the lesson that only what's done for the glory of Jesus Christ will last the hard way. You don't need to learn it that way. You can turn to him today. Turn to the Lord today. Live your life for him. Turn to the Lord today. Live your life according to his word. Live your life in a way that seeks to honor and glorify Jesus Christ in all that you do, and God will see to it that you do make a, li- a lasting impact on someone in this life. How's that done? It's done by bearing good fruit. By bearing good fruit. Instead of being a curse to others by doing evil and practicing lawlessness, by God's grace, you can bless others by doing good, honoring the Lord and living your life in a way that pleases him. So having requested and predicted the fate of the, uh, the wicked, David is so confident in the fact that God will deal justly with the wicked that he immediately bursts into a song of thanksgiving. So let's continue looking at verses 6 and 7. He said, says, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, 
and with my song I shall thank him. Now as you're reading this, you might be asking yourself, I wonder what David saw. I I wonder what David saw that, that had changed in his circumstances. What change do you think he might have seen? And the answer is, we don't know. Maybe none. Maybe none. None that we can see for certain. But what has changed is simply the fact that before, David hadn't poured his heart out before the Lord, and now he has. And as he's prayed to God, he's remembered who God is. He's remembered how good God is, how just God is, how faithful God is. He knows that God has heard him in light of those attributes. And knowing that God has heard him is enough. It's enough to cause him to rejoice. I mean, how could it, how could it not be enough? It's amazing to consider that God hears the cries and the petitions of his children. And for this reason, David changes from prayer to praise, from desperation to exaltation seamlessly. Now, to be honest, you and I and and everybody else, we have this tendency to pray and, and maybe even to get a favorable outcome and then to just leave it at that. We don't always remember to thank God. Even before we see our prayers answered, simply knowing that God has heard us and that he will always do what is best. But every experience God brings his children through is worth thanking him for. Think about that. Do you believe what Romans 8.28 says, that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes? If you believe that, that's a promise. If you believe that, then you have every reason to thank and praise God even in the darkest of your circumstances because what God is bringing you through is ultimately for a better good than you would have chosen for yourself. When you consider the fact that God has redeemed you, when you consider the fact that he has adopted you as his own by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and when you consider that God is just, that he always does what is right, he always does what is good, you too have every reason to praise the Lord with every prayer spoken. Because you know he's heard you. He's heard you. He he will not count you among the wicked. He will deal with evil. He will deal with sin. He's promised that. He's promised that he will. That's a promise that we must believe even when we don't actually physically see it with our own eyes. We know that whatever God has promised, he will surely do. And thus we can find peace and we can find joy and we can find every reason to rejoice and to praise God even when it looks like something, even when it looks like nothing has changed because we're reminded that God is sovereign and we're reminded that God is good. If you reach a point where it's difficult to persist in prayer. Remember that it's often even more difficult to remember to thank God for who he is. 
to thank God for the fact that he's a good God, a God who's faithful to his own and who loves his children with the same love that he loves his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are waiting on the Lord and calling out to him, praying to him, and things change for the better, here's a warning, don't fall under the delusion that it's just due to chance. And don't fall under the greater delusion that it's because of something that you did, that you fixed things yourselves and that you were the answer yourself all along. Perish the thought. Give praise to God. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. Give thanks to God. In Luke 17, we're told of a time when the Lord Jesus healed 10 lepers. And upon healing them, Jesus sent them to the priests who would then certify them as being clean, which was what the Old Testament law required be done. And then we read this in Luke 17, verses 15 and 16. Now one of them, one of these lepers who was healed, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, to Jesus. And he was a Samaritan. Now, of course, that detail is put in there to kind of be a little bit of a stinger because the Samaritans were viewed as the enemies of, of God, the enemies of the Jews. They were half-bred Jews who were, by nature, apostate and irredeemable, according to uh, what the Jews thought of them anyway. But this one, this one Samaritan, is the one who comes back and gives thanks, this one out of the ten. And Jesus responds in verses 17 and 18, saying, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who, retur who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Now part of the point, at least part of the point of this story, is that it is just so easy, it's so natural for us to be like those nine. And yet we should be at least as sure to give thanks as we were to persist in prayer. It's okay to thank God for answering your prayers before you actually see him do it because you know that he will. Psalm 27 began with David declaring, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And Psalm 28 has come full circle. He's no longer fearful as he declares, the Lord is my strength and my shield. I mean, imagine having a shield that you don't trust. What good is it? It's no good at all. That's a very bad place to be. But the Lord is never failing. And David believes that. He, he knows that. And so he finds himself not in a bad place with a shield he doesn't trust, but in a good place. A blessed, mighty fortress. The refuge that only can be found in God. So up until this point, as we consider this psalm, and the way it's structured, it's been a very personal psalm. It's basically just been one-on-one, -on -one, David and God. But that changes now in the final stanza, which is found in the final two verses of this psalm. Let's look at those, verses 8 and 9, where he says, The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. See, what David realizes here as he's poured his heart out to God is that God has never, ever, ever 
not even once, let him down. And God has never let you down either. Never. Not even once. If you're a Christian, he has never failed you. He has never disappointed you. If it's ever seemed as though he has, if it's ever felt as though he has, it's only because you have misunderstood what happened. God is the strength of his people, all of his people, not just David. See, the privileges that David had through faith in Christ alone, you also have. The blessings of heaven that David had through faith in Christ alone, you have. Just as David looked to God to be his strength and his refuge, especially in times of uncertainty and distress, we too must look to God to be our refuge and our strength. Because our safety is not found in shields or horses or chariots or armored tanks, but in the Lord who is with his children and who is for his children. Now the anointed that David refers to here in verse 8 is actually himself, but we have to remember that David is a foreshadow. He's a type that points to Christ. David was an earthly king whose life pointed us to the heavenly king, Jesus Christ, in whom every heavenly blessing is found. God blessed Israel by blessing the king, and God uh, blesses his people through the king of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a pattern here that I want us to all see. Make sure that we, that we catch this. Uh, there's a pattern that David is actually modeling for us as his prayer turns from just himself to the entire people of God. And I want to make sure that you see that because when we pray, we should not only give thanks to God for all that he's done for us personally and for the goodness that he's bestowed upon us personally, but also for the goodness and the blessings that he's bestowed upon all of his children We should pray that others would know God's blessings, that others would know God's strength, that others would know God as a refuge the same way that we have learned how to see God. We shouldn't pray that it would just be us. We should pray as our confidence in God grows that all of God's people would experience the same thing. God's people are God's prized possession. Now let me ask you, if you have a prized possession, what do you do with it? You take care of it, right? Don't you know that God does the same thing with his prized possession? And that his people are his prized possession? Friends, if you are in Christ Jesus, the basis upon which you come to the throne of God in prayer is the active obedience of Christ, his perfect sinlessness, and the blood he shed on Calvary on your behalf. But if you are not in Christ, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ savingly, I have to warn you that you have absolutely no basis upon which to approach God and to pray to God. You must have Christ's righteousness And you only receive that by believing in Jesus. Only then can you approach the throne of grace and receive strength and comfort in your time of need. Only then will your prayers be answered. And when your prayers are heard, when they're answered, on the basis of Christ's perfect sacrifice on your behalf, you can know that your prayers will be answered. One way or another, 
your prayers will be answered. Think of it this way. God has already given you the greatest and the most costly gift. That being the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins for all who will believe in him. He's already given you the most costly gift. Why would he deny you now of something so much smaller? And it might not look the way that you expect it to look, but in such a case, it will prove in the end to be better than you had asked for. Because the truth is, if you're in Christ, this is a profound truth. Listen to this. If you are in Christ, God is more for you than you are for yourself. If you are in Christ Jesus, through faith, if you have put your faith, your trust for salvation in Christ alone, God is more for you than you are for yourself. In the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson, quote, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises, end quote. In other words, if it looks like God's promises aren't being fulfilled, trust his providences. Trust, trust where he has you. Trust where he's bringing you, even when you can't see in the moment. Knowing that God is not indifferent to the cries of his people. And so therefore, we should rejoice in knowing that God hears us and that he will answer in his time and in his way. God will bless his people. God will be a shepherd to his people. He will carry them forever. And as we pray to him and as we wait on him, let us be sure, let us be confident that he hears us. And let us know and be fully assured that our help is found in God and God alone. Let us, therefore, persist. Persist in praying and persist in looking to and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, our shepherd, our refuge, our rock, our redeemer, and our strength. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we remember that it is sufficient, that it addresses every emotion, every need, every circumstance we face. And so we thank you for the way that your word instructs us. Teach us, O oh Lord, to have the confidence that David had here. That you not only hear our prayer, but that you will answer in the best way possible. Even if it's not according to our understanding, teach us, O oh Lord, to trust in you. Teach us to trust that your ways are higher, that your ways are better and purer than our ways and teach us to trust that even in the darkest valleys you're not only with us but you carry us forever teach us to take that confidence with us through life in order that we may walk in obedience to you trusting in you more fully all for the glory of Christ 
our good shepherd. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.